so good good morning, good afternoon, good evening to our uh, audience members joining us from across the globe. Uh, I'm Raymond Karam, the Chief Program and Development Officer here at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. We're delighted to be co-hosting this webinar with our partners and friends at the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore and partnering again uh, with our good friend Clemens Che, who will be moderating the session today. Um, as the UN Middle East and North Africa Climate Week takes place in the UAE this week, uh, we thought it would be appropriate to host this conversation to take stock of uh, the commitments articulated by Middle Eastern and Gulf countries over the past year and preview the road ahead to two major uh, climate gatherings that will take place in the region, uh, COP27, which will take place later this year in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, and COP28 uh, in the UAE the following year. Uh, we have an excellent panel of experts, so which I will introduce very briefly here, uh, and then I'm sure uh, all of you have seen their bios or can access their bios on the website uh, where you register to join us. Uh, so first, I'll introduce uh, Karim El-Gindi, an urban sustainability and climate consultant based in London and a non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute. His areas of expertise include developing sustainable and resilient cities and neighborhoods, climate policy analysis, energy transition, and assessing the impact of policy, economics, urbanization, planning, and urban systems on sustainability and resilience. His current work focuses on the Middle East and North Africa, especially around the Eastern Mediterranean and the Gulf. Uh, he's also an associate at DAR, an associate fellow at Chatham House, and the founder and coordinator of Carbon uh, or Carbon, uh, an advocacy initiative promoting sustainability in the cities of the Middle East and North Africa through research and communication. Uh, also with us is our very good friend, Aisha Sarhi, a non-resident fellow at AGSIW and research fellow at the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute. Her areas of research include uh, political economy of environmental sustainability, energy policy, renewables, and climate policies with a focus on the Arab region. In addition to scientific publications, her research has appeared in different media outlets, including Al Arabiya TV, Reuters, the AP, the New Arab Arab News, and Oman Daily Observer. And moderating the session today is our good friend Clemens Jay. He is a research fellow at the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute, where he heads the Diffusion of Ideas Gulf Research Cluster. His research focuses on the history and politics of the Gulf states, with a particular emphasis on Kuwait, Oman, and Saudi Arabia. Prior to joining MEI, he was a Sabah fellow at Durham University, where he taught and completed his PhD. Uh, so now with that, I'll give the floor to Clemens uh, and just a quick uh, note uh, that uh, we might uh, end the session a little earlier than planned today, but I'll let Clemens uh, uh, share uh, his uh, plan with all of you. Thank you again and enjoy the session. Thank you, Raymond, and welcome everyone to this online panel jointly organized by MEI NUS and Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. Today, I'm joined by two esteemed colleagues, as Raymond has kindly introduced their profiles, Mr. Karim Al-Agendi and Dr. Aisha Al-Sarihi. My name is Clemens Che, and I'll be moderating the discussion on the two upcoming conferences of the parties, COP27 and COP28, hosted by Egypt and the United Arab Emirates, respectively. So COP26, which concluded in Glasgow last November, reach agreement on a broad range of topics, including finalizing the rule book for implementing the 2015 Paris Agreement. But still, you know, there, there's still a great deal of effort required to build on the promises made there. 
because the world remains on track to be 1.8 to 2.4 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures by the end of the century. And anything above 1.5 degrees Celsius will have massive ecological and social impacts. Also, from a justice perspective, the pledge by wealthy industrialized nations of $100 billion a year to help developing countries remains not only insufficient in real analysis, but also an estimated of only $80 million in funding has been agreed upon thus far. So we will return to this topic with our speakers later on. Today's webinar, really, it's significant in terms of the date because it coincides with the MENA Climate Week currently being held in the UAE. And interestingly, at the plenary opening speech delivered by Dr. Sultan Al-Jaber, the UAE Minister of Industry and Advanced Technology, he stated, and I quote, the key lesson is that we should not adopt climate policies that lead to energy poverty. We need to keep investing low cost, low carbon energy that can be provide, that can provide the base load power that the world relies on today. This means that alongside renewables, we need nuclear, natural gas, and oil from parts of the world where it takes the least carbon to extract it, like the UAE and the MENA region. So Dr. Sultan Al-Jaber, you know, says that we should always be looking for new opportunities that make climate sense on top of solutions. And, and this overall approach is what he calls a progressive one. So I think this is an apt point of departure for today's discussion. Our two speakers will be delivering opening remarks for about 10 minutes, 10 minutes each, during which the audience is free to type in their questions in the Zoom chat box to either myself or to MEI events. So you don't have to wait till the end of their remarks to send in your questions. So without further ado, please allow me to welcome Mr. Karim Elgandi to provide his opening remarks, which will touch on the agenda setting of the two COPs ahead, what the priorities will be for the two presidencies and how he sees the progression from Glasgow to Sham Al Sheikh so far. So please, Karim, all yours. Thanks, Clemens. If you can hear me, um, thanks. Thanks for the invitation, uh, and thanks for organizing this timely conversation. Um, let me try to set the scene, if you like, and share some of my takes on the next two years in terms of regional climate policy. Uh, I think you, it was well that you pointed out that this uh, uh, panel of ours coincides with the MENA Climate Week. This is a great coincidence, and uh, must, must also note here that the, um, the MENA's Climate Week is the actual is the first Climate Week that this new framework that came after the Glasgow Pact uh, is is uh, a new mechanism that is aimed at uh, encouraging regional collaboration. Uh, so it was great that the first uh, attempt happened here uh, within the MENA within the MENA region, the region that we focus on. Um, and it's certainly quite an interesting choice for a first week because the region has historically had this reputation of being an obstructionist region. And uh, given the rising ambitions that we have saw ahead of COP26, and there are zero carbon pledges by Saudi Arabia, by the UAE, by Bahrain, and uh, there's plenty of increased NDCs uh, elsewhere in the region, um, it's certainly clear that the region um, has become, to a certain extent, a focus of increased climate action. Maybe from a low, from a low base, but certainly uh, an increase, uh, an, an increase nonetheless. Um, so, I would say that the region, just around uh, COP26 and, and just before that, might have come to a realization 
that it's more useful to be around the climate table than to be outside of that climate table. And, and, and to coin a phrase, I would say that the region has joined the climate bandwagon uh, during, during COP26. Um, but more interestingly, as the region joined that climate bandwagon, increased ambitions, announced zero carbon targets, set new visions for how climate should be done, uh, and I'll get to that later, uh, not just for the region, but even beyond, it seemed that it was trying to wrestle control of the steering wheel for that bandwagon. Not only did it join the table, it actually wanted to, to steer the conversation uh, around climate and the climate conversations have been going on for more than two decades now. So it was very interesting uh, that change, the beginning of the shift that we saw uh, just, just during COP26. And one mechanism in this, which this is happening is CCE as a competing framework for managing carbon. It's, uh, it's a new idea about sort of the circular carbon economy and how that could be an alternative mechanism, alternative mechanism to the existing idea that we have in mind, efficiency, electrification, decarbonization of energy sources through renewables, maybe that is not the only solution, according to the proponents of CCE. So they would argue that there's an alternative way that the world needs to adopt if our ultimate goal is, is carbon. Um, but that's just one way in which that region wants to shape that conversation globally. The region is also quite heterogeneous. So climate action cannot be the same everywhere. So we've noticed, um, again, with COP26, the emergence of two groups. There's the high ambition, high carbon footprint group of the oil and gas exporters. Um, it uses its climate policies to a certain extent as a new tool of public diplomacy, um, and it has certainly found a new voice in, in climate action. And then there's a low ambition, low carbon footprint group of developing countries. Um, they include developing countries, in the Mashraq and then and the, and the Maghreb regions, but also they include developed, uh, least developed developing countries. Um, and on on the whole, these two groups, or the, the second group of de developing and least developed uh, countries within the low ambition, low carbon footprint, they tend to have climate policies that prioritize adaptation um, and and also have mitigation plans that are normally conditional on getting financial support. Um, in the coming two COPs, COP27 and COP28, I personally expect that these groupings are likely to become more differentiated um, during the negotiations. So COP27, which is held by Egypt and in Sharm el-Sheikh, is mostly adapt about adaptation. The, the pendulum has swung towards adaptation, finance, loss and damage, all the non-mitigation issues. The Egyptian presidency made it no secret um, that this is what it wants to do. There was an interesting conversation happening earlier this morning during MENA Climate Week by the Egyptian presidency for COP27, and they, they made the priorities quite clear um, in that mitigation is still there, but adaptation was mentioned far too, more, far too many times um, loss and damage and, and climate finance. And it's an Africa COP, it's a, it's a developing countries COP with the voice of those countries have not been heard. These are the themes that we're hearing. So, but if you also look at Egypt, um, Egypt is also an extreme example of that second group of Arab countries, the low carbon, low ambition group. It doesn't have any decarbonization plans. It's NDC doesn't include carbon reduction targets, conditional or non-conditional. Um, it also did not join any of the COP26 voluntary commitments on coal, reducing methane, or even preventing uh, deforestation. So COP27 
is likely to focus on implementation of commitments, decarbonization of commitments made so far, so in the in the in, in Glasgow in the in the climate pact, but it will not necessarily push for any more mitigation action to plug the gap that scientists have been telling us is that this uh, gap between the current pledges and the available carbon budget for us to uh, keep 1.5 alive. So we're not going to see that. It's not going to happen in 27 by the looks of it. There'd be less asking countries to commit to more and more demands that countries deliver on their existing promises made to date uh, to until, until Glasgow. Um, Egypt could get criticized for not focusing enough on decarbonization and for failing to update its NDC, for example. Egypt has not yet updated its NDC, uh, but it's most likely going to deflect that criticism by pointing to its um, rapid growth of renewable energy capacity, which is doing very well in the last uh, few years. It, very likely it will hit 20% of generation capacity this year and might even hit 42% of generation capacity by 2035 if things go to plan. Um, it will also point to its plans to gasify mobility and, and turn it from um, oil-based um, petrol into, into natural gas because it has the capacity, it has the natural gas, and also to ultimately turn within five years to, um, uh, to electric mobility. Um, it will also likely point to the fact that it plans to export electricity and natural gas as a transition fuel to Europe, especially given the current geopolitical situation. COP28, on the other hand, is a very different animal. Uh, being held in Abu Dhabi, uh, it's being built to all of us as a solutions COP. Um, you've, you've, you've referred to Dr. Jabber's remarks, uh, and in those remarks, he pointed to opportunities, not just solutions, but opportunities, the new economy, and the, and the opportunities within the new climate economy. Um, in my view, the UAE is the perfect representative of that first group of Arab countries, the high ambition, but also high carbon footprint. Um, it, it's, I personally expect it that the UAE by COP28 will endorse CCE, the circular carbon economy, um, to, and it will push hard for the use of climate technologies from carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, as well as uh, renewable energy. It will push for desalination, more efficient desalination um, to deal with regional and, and specifically uh, national issues. Uh, to do with water security, but also for other sectors such as agri-tech. Again, uh, again, more technology, more solutions. Um, but there's a general background to both of those COPs as well. I sh should also mention both COP27 and 28 are likely to feature the, the great pushback by the proponents of natural gas. Um, I personally expect that natural gas will be promoted strongly as a transition fuel and as a critical component in stabilizing the energy market, especially that we're seeing these rising uh, exports from both Egypt uh, and Qatar uh, to Europe. And that's regardless of what happens in Ukraine, really. The, the, that, that ship has already sailed. There is a desire to diversify away from Russian oil and gas, and Egyptian exports are rising. The Qatari exports are rising. There was a recent deal um, with the German, uh, with with the with the German Chancellor recently, um, to 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 for long-term exports of, of gas, uh, the UAE has also um, signed a deal for hydrogen um, at the same time. So there's clearly a, a push to diversify, and there will be a need to um, to to deliver those. And and that entry point, a geopolitical entry point, will be the one um, used by uh, those proponents of of. Um, of natural gas, in addition to the 
conventional idea that natural gas is a transition fuel. Um, it's also likely that the UAE will push for some fossil fuel exports in the future. Um, during COP28, it's a common position in the UAE um, that there will be a need, even in the most optimistic scenarios, the 1.5 compliance scenarios still include fossil fuel production, still include oil. Um, and I think in the minds of um, GCC countries, this oil will come from the GCC. Um, so if you imagine that there's only 10% required um, in 2050 for oil and gas, that 10% will have to come from the, from the GCC. And the reason here is that uh, the, those producers are the lowest cost and the lowest carbon producers. So countries like the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Qatar and Kuwait have that natural ability. So they're likely to push for that as a low, um, as a low cost and also a low carbon option uh, globally. Um, the other background, again, to COP27 and 28 is the emergence of regional collaboration uh, in the form of the Middle East uh, Green Initiative, which was uh, promoted by Saudi Arabia last year. And that's the first attempt at regional collaboration um, ever in the region on, cli on climate action. And it will certainly um, provide a lot of fuel uh, for those who think that countries cannot tackle climate impacts alone uh, within, this, within this region. And they cannot be islands and they have to collaborate and pool resources and share knowledge if they are to avoid the worst uh, impacts of climate action. We also saw more collaboration in terms of um, the Arab group, which is the coordination lobby within or the, the lobby that um, arranges for um, negotiations within, within the COPs. Um, it had seen quite an improvement in terms of their coordination uh, during COP26, which was, which was great. Um, but ultimately, the arrival of negotiations to the region um, at, as COP27 and 28 has certainly captured uh, the attention of the region, um, especially when it comes to climate change impacts. There's more conversations happening about the impacts, about climate technology. Um, the imagination of many, many of the region's youth have been captured. Uh, many of whom are attempting to volunteer to help with the organization of COP27 and, and 28. And these are people that would otherwise have not been interested in climate, and, but now they are. Uh, and even, even under the worst case scenario, where there is tokenized civil society participation, not really meaningful. And even with COP27 being held in a small resort, well outside of the major population centers in, in Egypt, um, uh, out of Sharm el-Sheikh in the Southern Sinai, Still, the impacts of these climate summits will certainly be felt across the region and would only drive the climate agenda forward. Thank you, Karim. I think you, you provided us with a lot of food for thought with your salient points. Uh, there were a number that I would like to return to, including the, you know, the historical context that you said about the region being obstructionist and the great pushback as well, the transition fuel that you mentioned on, on gas. And of course, the, how you differentiate that, you know, the two regions and, and the points of entry for collaboration. So I think those are very, very um, at points that we will return to later. But let me remind our audience uh, before I turn to our second speaker that you can put in your questions right now in the chat box and we can, of course, read it out to the speakers once their opening remarks are delivered. So let me now turn to my colleague, Dr. Aisha Al-Sari. He will tell us a bit more about how the Gulf states present their case for climate actions, uh, their areas of emphasis, and how proposals are framed, and, and her take on whether the upcoming COPs will be a game changer 
for the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, and the wider region on their road to climate action. Aisha, please. Okay, thank you very much, Clemens, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and I would like also to thank everyone joining our session today. Um, yes, so uh, since my expertise falls on the GCC, I would, uh, in my remarks, uh, tend to focus more on the GCC position in uh, climate change and as well in the, in the upcoming COPs. Uh, first of all, I think I think that the 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 MENA region is living uh, interesting times when it comes to the climate action. As Karim mentioned, it used to be known as an obstructionist to the climate action, but I think now and most recently have been seeing momentum uh, when it comes to the addressing the climate change uh, uh, within the MENA region uh, generally and the GCC specifically. Uh, in my remarks, I, I would like to um, focus on three questions. Uh, the first question is why the GCC represents a, a unique case for climate action. Uh, and then uh, what will be the priorities uh, for the GCC uh, uh, and what will be the focus in the upcoming COPs in Egypt and the UAE? And then I would like to um, uh, look at this uh, very important question. So we would have COP27 and then COP28 and then, and then what? Is it gonna be a, a game changer for climate action in the region itself and globally? So with that, um, uh, first of all, I think uh, the GCC region joins the other MENA countries in facing the common and the unique uh, challenges of the climate change. Uh, first of all, the MENA region is characterized by fragile desert environment where the warming is happening twice as fast as the rest of the world. Um, we have already witnessed in the region uh, the highest recorded temperature. For example, it was 54 degrees Celsius in Kuwait in 2016. Uh, and then uh, during the same week, it reached uh, 53.9 degrees Celsius in Basra and, and Iraq. Uh, we, we are also witnessing changes in the uh, precipitation trends uh, in the region, as well as increased frequency of extreme weather events, uh, especially in the last few years. Um, and so, however, I think for the GCC, uh, it differentiates from other MENA countries uh, uh, in a way that the GCC countries are more wealthy than the other MENA countries. And that puts it in a position where it, it can build the, the resilience against, uh, against the effects of that climate change more easily. But at the same time, it puts it in a position where it can obstruct the, uh, the, the, the climate, the global climate action so that it can protect its, uh, the, its main source of income, which is the hydrocarbon resources. And that actually, um, that actually is a reason. Uh, there are also other reasons for the uh, GCC countries to play this role in you know, uh, trying to make sure that the, the ongoing um, uh, global momentum to address the climate change doesn't happen at the expense uh, of its hydrocarbon resources. 
because for the MENA region, this oil wealth also plays a significant role in addressing the, the, the major issues that the, the, the countries are facing, which are the water scarcity, the food uh, security, um, as well as uh, you know um, the the rising temperature and the need for for the cooling. So, for example, the GCC countries depends on uh, almost eighty to ninety percent uh, uh, on the import of the food. Um, for some countries like the Qatar, Bahrain, and the UAE or 5, 50 to 70% like in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. So the oil revenues uh, provide a main source uh, to, for those countries to secure their uh, food needs. And then also the GCC countries are much below uh, the global average when it comes to uh, the uh, renewable water resource um, uh, scarcity threshold, uh, which is 1,000. But for the GCC countries, much below that, it is uh, it's on average it's below one uh, one hundred uh, and three uh, cubic meter, um, and it, for for example for Kuwait, UAE, and Qatar, it is uh, it's around thirty uh, cubic meter. So the the oil and gas is um, providing the solution for and um, for the desalination. And desalination provide around two thirds of the water needs in the GCC. And then also the, the oil and gas resources are also uh, providing the solution for the rising temperature, which is the cooling as 70 to 80% of electricity consumption uh, in the region is also goes for cooling. So, so the, these, these reasons, uh, uh, gives the, the GCC government, and as Karim also mentioned, uh, historically to play a significant role in climate negotiation and making sure that uh, the, the, any advancement of climate action doesn't happen at the expense of the oil and gas exports. And, and to look back uh, in history, uh, the GCC countries, along with other oil exporting countries, have been successful. Uh, in, uh, uh, in introducing this element that uh, focus on reducing, uh, you know, the impact of climate response measures on oil producing countries. So for instance, uh, in the establishment of the first uh, climate treaty in <clears throat> 1992, uh, the, the I think the oil uh, producing countries were successful to include article 4.8, uh, which uh, calls for countries uh, to put into consideration uh, the impact of the response measure uh, on uh, oil exporting countries. And then also uh, the, the oil exporting countries also were successful to include Article uh, 3.14 in uh, Kyoto Protocol and Article 4.15 uh, in the Paris Agreement later on. So with that, I think um, uh, I think uh, the the GCC countries uh, will uh, in the upcoming COPs, COP twenty seven and COP twenty eight, uh, will put a further emphasis and will continue uh, to push for the protection of the hydrocarbon uh, resources. 
to put this into a context, we also need to look at what is happening on the ground when it comes to climate action in the GCC. Actually, if we look at uh, most of the climate solutions uh, and the developments that are happening in the GCC, they are mostly revolving around the energy sector. So, um, and what I have mentioned before, it just gives an explanation for that. So the GCC countries have been uh, pushing for the idea that the, the, the tackling of the climate change uh, doesn't, uh, you know, uh, make any bias to any type of technology or fuel, but rather should focus on the reduction of the greenhouse gas emissions. And this is also where there's a, a high uh, focus uh, will be on developing the carbon capture and storage technology, along with other technologies. And that is for that is really a mix and uh, makes sense for the GCC countries because, in a way, um, it, it it gives longer life for the hydrocarbon resources. But at the same time, once you develop those technologies at home, you help. Um, you know, to free more um, oil and gas to be exported, um, you know, and to benefit from higher share in the energy market. And also, um, so this is why we see, for example, the development of the circular carbon economy approach, which mentioned also by Karim, the circular carbon economy approach was proposed uh, in the G20, when the Saudi Arabia was the president for the G20 meeting, um, and it was endorsed by the energy minister since, and this approach uh, basically doesn't ex exclude the fossil fuel resources from the energy, from the new energy transition, rather it focuses on preventing the release of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. And it advocates for all type of technologies, uh, but not any specific technologies. So um, what else? Uh, so else, uh, I think uh, going to my question as well, uh, will the COP 27, 28 uh, be a changing point uh, or changing, the game for the global and the regional climate action. So uh, since the, the COPs has started, we have seen those negotiations happen. We see the stakeholders come together and negotiate. And then we see the statement that comes from the COP at the end. Uh, however, does that necessarily mean that there is a real uh, progress on the ground when it comes to the climate action? Uh, actually, the, the recent assessment uh, says that even if the countries implement their NDCs, uh, there the, we will still be at the you know we will let the uh, global temperature to rise to 2.7 degrees Celsius. Uh, so the, we are still uh, you know lagging behind uh, in terms of the actual action when it comes to the climate. But I think the COP27 and the COP28 will be a turning point uh, because, uh, especially in COP28, when the UAE is hosting uh, the COP, uh, there will be the first global stock take. And the global stock take, it means the assessment of the global progress in you know, achieving for the countries on whether they are achieving 
uh, their uh, ambitions that are listed in the NDCs. Uh, it will focus on assessing both the progress in the adaptation, mitigation, and also the finance. So this will make a push for the countries, you know, not only looking at their NDC, but also to look on the ground whether they are doing enough or, or not. Uh, so I think for the, the GCC and the MENA region in general, that would definitely be a, a point where the countries you know, uh, the, the first important uh, thing, uh, it will push for enabling domestic, uh, you know, uh, programs for the data collection, measurement and verification. This is something a real, which is a real issue in the, in the MENA region, both in terms of the mitigation and in terms of the adaptation. Now, although the, like there are data on the greenhouse gas emissions, for example, these data are not uh, really uh, accurate or uh, uh, represent the real uh, um, amount of the emissions on the ground. And also in terms of the adaptation, there aren't enough information, for example, about how much finance is allocated uh, uh, for adaptation within each country. Um, and also there are not enough information, how is climate uh, change is impacting the different economic sectors uh, in the MENA countries. So, and I also, I think uh, the COP27 and COP28 would play a major role in enhancing uh, you know, um, the, the stakeholders to come together to collaborate. It is happening already, especially with the MENA Climate Week. Uh, we see stakeholders uh, coming uh, together from within the region and also from outside the region. So as, as Gary mentioned, is mentioned, it is an entry point uh, for collaboration. But I also think uh, uh, it, it is going to be a, playing a major role in raising the awareness uh, about the climate change uh, challenges and solutions, not only among the, the government and the private sector, uh, but also with the citizens who are there. Um, so yeah, and I think I will stop here. Thank you, Aisha. Um, again, more food for thought. Um, and, and I want to go back to a certain point that you, you mentioned about the first global stock take un, under the UAE presidency. And, and, and before I, I put forward my question, my own question, I'd like to remind our audience again, while they're warming up, that you can put your questions into the Zoom chat box and then I can uh, read it out to our two speakers. So let me now exercise my privilege as uh, moderator to, to put forward the first question which has to do with the stock pick, but more specifically on the ratchet mechanism uh, that we saw prior to, to COP26, when you know, countries were, uh, in other words, ratcheting up uh, their intended NDCs, nationally determined contributions uh, for the year. And, and it seems to be going as a trend. So, so my question to the two speakers is, will it be, I mean, will this trend sustain itself? And also, uh, one of the COP outcomes mentioned that fossil fuel subsidies and coal power was to be phased down. It opened and closed inverted commas, phased down, but the language was changed later on to phase out. And that was under pressure by uh, China and India as a last minute push to, to change the wording. So again, your thoughts on, on these two uh, subtopics, I guess. So maybe we'll start with Karim first. 
Sure. Thanks, Clemens. I think I think uh, whether the ratchet mechanism pays off is the one hundred trillion dollar question. Really, I think I'll have a go. So, the ratchet mechanism was one way of dealing with the fundamental flaw in the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement, after the failure of um, Copenhagen, which is let's make everyone do this, um, taking a completely different approach. There's a headline goal, 1.5, 2 degrees, let's all work to it, let's all sign on an agreement to say that we will do that collectively. Individually, though, we will be allowed to voluntarily decide what commitments we want to have national, at the national level. And the, the fundamental flaw here is when you add up all those commitments, they don't add up to one and a half degrees. They add up to three and a half degrees as they did back in 2015 and 16. So how do you plug this gap? Ah, ratchet mechanism, that will certainly fix it. Well, we'll, we will um, use all the powers of shaming to make countries um, do more every five years and, and do their part and, and encourage them as much as we can to continuously improve their ambition or increase their ambitions towards uh, carbon, carbon mitigation. The, the fundamental issue here is one, it was given five years, every, every five years, but there was a clause if countries didn't wanna do that, they could do it every 10 years. So there are not everyone updated the, their NDCs, uh, including as a, the, some of the, the host of the next COP. Um, and, and that's certainly um, a get out clause. Not every country feels uh, um, necessarily um, forced to do so. And they could do this by 2025, 20, 26, perhaps. Um, the other downside is uh, it's still voluntary. Countries could keep exactly the same. Even the countries that updated their, their, their NDCs, some countries use slightly different ways of measuring it in their, in their mechanism. So when all the dust settled, it was actually not that much improvement uh, compared to the previous NDC. So yes, on the whole, it's, we're moving along. The, the pledges have certainly improved uh, where we stood in terms of being able to plug that gap. Then the, the temperature increase um, projections have certainly come down slightly. Um, what has made more contribution, though, was the voluntary long-term strategies, for, which is the zero-carbon strategies by some of the major uh, global economies. These have certainly brought the curve down or, or um, lower the curve even more than what we had with the, with the ratchet mechanism on the NDCs. Um, but altogether, the mechanism that we have is one that is entirely voluntary. It's based on common but differentiated responsibilities because countries cannot, who feel not responsible for, for climate change are not going to do much for climate change. Uh, and that's, 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 that's the reality, unfortunately. Thanks, Karim. Uh, Aisha, would you like to add on to what Karim has just said? Well, yes, adding up to what Karim has said, I think the downside, uh, the major downside, it is voluntary uh, approach. So the countries don't have uh, to do it. And also when it comes to the assessment, the global stock take, it just looks at, you know, the NDCs. So the NDCs, uh, they, they list the ambitions, the, the mitigation and the adaptation. But, you know, the global stock take doesn't necessarily look at what is exactly happening on the ground or whether those NDCs are 
you know, translated into strategies uh, and real strategies and real action on the ground. And uh, I think uh, the, the, the issue uh, will continue as we have seen before. So we have seen those COP meetings happening uh, here uh, now and then, uh, but also we have seen the, you know, the, the global momentum to address greenhouse gas emissions is fluctuating. And whenever there is an emergency, like, you know, the, you know during the uh, financial crisis, we have seen a drop in the greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and then we have a, a quick rebound after that. The same happened with the uh, COVID-19. Uh, we have seen a, a drop and then a, a, a great rebound again. Um, and then also we see we see the same issue with the Ukraine crisis as well. The Ukraine crisis it it means the people uh, is in need to you know uh, unleash the gas production uh, as well as the oil as possible. And also the European countries are you know uh, going back to the coal uh, to uh, secure their energy needs. And so I expect that with the Ukraine crisis also there will be a rise in the greenhouse gas emissions. So there isn't any um, stable uh, global action to address climate change. And all those events, they are not related to global climate action. It's related to other crises that are happening. Um, so, yes. Thank you, Aisha. Uh, we've got a question coming in from Tracy. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to read out the question, but also add some flesh to it. Uh, the question is about the developing countries, or well, the statement is developing countries came close to securing the creation of a separate loss and damage financing facility. What happened to it? And I'm going to add a bit more on, on this. And how can the region take COP27 as an opportunity to access, enhance access to climate finance? And I know, Karim, you, you differentiated uh, the high carbon footprint group from the low carbon, low ambition group. So, you know, can they overlap in terms of helping, you know, each other? Um, and Aisha, you know, perhaps a take on, on uh, whether the Gulf has have a role in this, this kind of scenario. Um, again, going back to Karim first. Sure. Um, um, loss and damage and climate finance. I think COP27 is going to be a lot about finance. There's the pledge to achieve 100 billion a year by 2020, which never happened. I think it came close, but not, not quite there. And there was another attempt at bringing that deadline to 2023, but that failed during COP26. So at the moment, we're close to having a new commitment by uh, developed economies to provide some climate finance uh, there are multiple mechanisms. The Green Climate Fund, I think, is is the primary one, um, and achieving uh, achieving 100 billion per year as as promised, I think, is the least um, developed economies can do. And uh, COP27, I think, is when that will happen. Loss and damage, I think, we're far behind. There's no framework for this. There's no institutions for this. The in the EU was quite against that during COP26. I think I think there there are real concerns about liability for loss and damage and being legally liable. It almost feels like paying reparations to developed economies, to developing economies for the climate impacts. Uh, so I think I think the, the conversations, I'm not aware of what, when did we get close to achieving a framework? It might've been something I missed. 
Uh, but I think we're not going to be there in COP27. We could make some progress during COP27. But if developing economies are going to make a stand for loss and damage, this year is the year. And the presidency is all for it. And all the stars are aligned, if you like, for, for achieving that. So good progress, but might not necessarily have an agreement at the end of it. Thank you, Karim. Aisha? Uh, sure. So, yes, uh, when it comes to the climate finance and loss and damage, I think this is, would be uh, a major highlight for um, the African countries more than the GCC countries, because the GCC countries are more wealthy than the African countries. Uh, and yes, most of the climate finance in the MENA region has been reported to go uh, uh, mainly to the North African countries, uh, including uh, at the top, uh, Algeria, uh, sorry, uh, Egypt and Morocco, who have been re receiving the uh, significant amount of the climate finance that comes from different sources that like uh, green climate finance and other sources. However, um, if we look at uh, where the finance is allocated, uh, despite the challenges that the region is facing in terms of its needs to adapt to the, to the impacts of the climate change uh, of water scarcity, the food security, if you look at this climate finance, mostly goes to the mitigation aspect and you know uh, developing new the, the clean technologies like the renewables and investing in other uh, technology. So it's mostly focused on the energy sector rather than uh, focusing on the adaptation. Uh, whether the COP27 or COP28 will present an opportunity, I think definitely it is the time for the uh, uh, Egypt and uh, for the African uh, region to raise their voice and to push uh, for uh, mobilization of the climate finance and now um, although in the last COP there was a progress in you know um, mobilizing uh, the the finance the climate finance uh, I think the to enhance the commitment for that uh, mobilization of the climate finance uh, there is still room for it um, and for the MENA countries uh, my understanding that there there is also the need for the information as well as the capacity uh, building. Now, these two are not uh, necessarily uh, existing in a uh, sufficient way in the region. So some of the countries, although they are in a need for the uh, support in terms of the climate finance or the technology transfer, the, the capacity that is on the ground is not enough uh, to report those needs. So for the least developing countries like the Yemen, uh, uh, you know, Djibouti, Somalia, those countries, they mainly depend on the international organization like the World Bank, um, the UNEP and the other organization to help them to, you know, identify the impacts of the climate change as well as the, the needed solutions of it, as well as the needed, uh, you know, financial uh, support. So this is an opportunity also for the MENA countries to uh, present their needs in terms of the capacity building and the help of the uh, creating um, a system that helps with the data collection and analysis. 
Um, when it comes to the loss and damage and the climate finance for the GCC countries, now the GCC countries uh, position will be different on those aspects. Uh, however, um, so the GCC, they don't need the finance and in the NDCs, they mentioned that their uh, climate uh, ambitions are uh, unconditional. Um, however, uh, the, the need for compensation uh, to address the adverse impacts of the climate change, this has been a contentious uh, issue. So uh, if we look at the previous negotiations, the GCC were in a position that, uh, you know, they said that if, if you are going to, you know, compensate the least developing countries like the small island de developing countries, for the, the loss and the damage that happens to them, um, uh, then we also want the same uh, for us. Uh, if there is any um, adverse impacts on the uh, uh, oil export revenues. So yes, so this is why the issue uh, of the impact of response measures have been contentious uh, over the time. Thanks, Aisha. Uh, I, th I see the questions rolling in, so I'm going to, um, you know, direct the, the questions to the, to the appropriate speaker, especially when they are talking about the Gulf, I'll give it to, uh, to Aisha especially. Um, so now for, for Karim, uh, there is a question from Asif Shuja, my colleague, um, who, who puts in the question, technology is key to climate crisis mitigation policy. The industry of technology is also one of the major contributors of climate crisis. How do we reconcile with this dichotomy, especially in the context of developing sustainable cities? Sure, um, well, in, in, industrial development does need energy, but uh, for countries that don't have the expensive existing fossil fuel-based infrastructure, they could certainly leapfrog that. There are technologies today that they don't need to build um, they don't have to go through the fossil fuel stage first before they turn into more clean industrialization. Point I'm trying to make here, um, renewable energy today is cheaper for new capacity than, than fossil fuel. It is not cheaper than existing capacity. A new wind turbine farm is cheaper on a levelized cost of electricity than a new fossil, uh, say a coal power plant. It's not cheaper than an existing coal power plant because that's already been built. Um, so countries like those if th that need to industrialize, they certainly need energy in order to do that. And for carbon reasons and also for pollution reasons, they could certainly leapfrog that and move into something new. The emergence of renewables plus hydrogen allow even heavy industries to be powered by renewable energy. Their green hydrogen could certainly provide that. Blue hydrogen could provide that. If, it, if the carbon can be uh, sequestered and, and captured um, adequately before it's turned into hydrogen. And, and that's why countries like Germany are trying to import um, hydrogen from Saudi Arabia, from UAE, and, and from Morocco. So there's certainly no contradiction here. Development and industrialization can be achieved uh, without having to go through the 20th century all over again. Thanks, Karim. And I guess the next question is for Aisha. Uh, is from Mohammed Al-Sulaiti. Uh, and the question is, how can GCC countries adopt an environmentalist approach instead of an industrialist one 
after COP27 and 28? And in which sectors will their opportunities lie? Can you say the question again, please? Sure. How can GCC countries adopt an environmentalist approach instead of an industrialist one after COP 27, 28? And in which sectors will their opportunities lie? Right. So, yes. So, hello, Mohammed. Uh, nice to have you here. Um, so, yes, I think for the GCC, um, uh, now we have seen already the three GCC countries uh, UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain have announced net zero targets, and the net zero targets means that the the there will be a decarbonization of the economy from being um, highly dependent on fossil fuel resources to less dependent on the fossil fuel resources. This is what uh, the net zero uh, economic transition mean, and. For that to happen, it is not, in, in reality, it's not an easy question because it needs to happen uh, across sectors. Uh, not only we, we tend uh, in the GCC, we tend to focus on the energy sector, but it's not gonna be only on the energy sector, but it needs to tackle all the other sectors like the water, the agriculture, the fishery, um, everything. So, um, so I have written an article on the net uh, zero uh, economic transition in the GCC. It will come out soon. But in the article, I, I identified the areas where the countries can, you know, start, uh, uh, you know, the transition from high carbon to low carbon. So there are opportunities in all uh, sectors. There are opportunities, you know, in the transport sector, in the industrial sector, um, in the electricity sector. So the low-hanging fruit is in the electricity sector, and that could happen through the enhancing the energy efficiency, uh, increasing the use of the renewable energy, um, as well as, uh, you know, uh, developing perhaps the carbon capture and storage. But the the the, the MENA, like the GCC region could do with renewable uh, and without the carbon capture and storage because you know the uh, the high potential of the renewable energy resources and also uh, the low records of the uh, renewable energy cost is uh, recorded in the gcc uh, but then there are also the opportunities uh, to develop the low carbon technologies for the industrial and for the transport sector. And that could happen, you know, through the development of the hydrogen. And there's already a momentum and initiatives and competition between the GCC countries on who is going to develop uh, the, the hydrogen sector uh, faster and in a large scale so they can have uh, a high share in the energy market. So it, in a way, it would help transforming the, the economy, both domestically, as well as it helps to make the economy more competitive in terms of uh, being able to also export those resources. However, we are speaking about uh, you know, technologies that are not mature uh, in a level that could happen in a large scale in a short period of time. So, this is applicable to the GCC, but other countries globally. So 
how the GCC can do it, they can start with bilateral projects in different, uh, you know, economic sectors uh, that I've mentioned, uh, and then scaling up it gradually. And I think, um, you know, since we are living a time where the value of oil and gas exported, uh, exports uh, uh, is still um, uh, is still uh, remarkable, I think the revenues that comes from here could help the GCC countries to use those resources uh, to help in, you know, uh, focusing on how uh, they can develop each sector in a way that is, you know, let the economic growth happen, but also not at, at the expense of the environment or the climate uh, system. Um, so we, we shouldn't stop at the point where we debate, oh, we are, you know, um, we are still developing countries and we are not responsible for the greenhouse gas emissions that happened historically. Uh, I think it is a chance and, you know, the, the clean energy transition is, you know, creating uh, job opportunities. Uh, it's creating um, new also market opportunities for the small, medium enterprises. And all of that actually is in line with the economic diversification ambitions that have been in the GCC. So I think, uh, as Karim mentioned, uh, the economic growth should not be in contradict uh, with, you know, uh, developing the uh, low carbon technologies because these are complementing each other, especially nowadays. Thank you, Aisha. Uh, got another question coming from Chen Zhi. Um, this, this question is for, for Karim, and it's an interesting one about uh, the principle of greening the brown and growing the green. I think I, I, I think I, I might have come across it somewhere. But the question is about, well, the statement and then question is, in principle, all economic sectors can be green, including through the introduction of clean and innovative technologies. A country can also address its brown industry and energy intensive sectors, such as construction or, or cement through new production technologies and more efficient materials. So how difficult is it to exert a push away from the brown economy and incentivize participation in the new green sectors? And I think this probably has something to do with urbanization as well, perhaps. But Karim, over to you. Uh, okay, so I can talk about urbanization for hours, but I can briefly touch on, on industrial, industrial components. The, the transition of industrial economies towards uh, greener processes is, is quite complicated and, and quite difficult, I must say. It's almost as difficult as it is dealing with existing cities compared to new cities. So the point I made earlier about leapfrogging the 20th century by building cleaner technology industrializations um, powered by cleaner energy, that doesn't apply in existing economies that are already dependent um, on processes that are not as clean. Uh, what you can do is gradually clean your supply chains and uh, gradually use better processes, gradually improve your energy efficiency, but that takes time and that's hard, I must say, especially for industrialized nations. Um, having said that, when it comes to urbanization, there are multiple challenges and dilemmas. Do you start afresh? Do you build a new? If, if your population is increasing and your country that doesn't have enough land, 
maybe you don't have as many options. Say Singapore, for example, has no option really in terms of building a new city somewhere out west. Um, but if the only option is available is to green the existing city, then it can certainly find ways in which you can use water more efficiently, treat the, the wastewater better, uh, source all the energy from renewable energy sources, sort the, sort the solid waste and recycle it and compost it and achieve more circularity in, in, the, in the wider economy. Um, new cities tend to be cleaner and neater and urbanization of that sort tends to build on the latest uh, understanding of planning, the latest um, and the most efficient forms uh, of, the, of land use uh, and the, our best understanding of how to create livable, sustainable, resilient, inclusive cities uh, as, as we all aspire to. Um, but the, the wider point about the transition, I think, needs a, a, a holistic um, reframing of how we want to live our lives. The, these colors, I mean, are, I might be a little bit confused about them, but I would say the main point is that we are currently living through uh, an injustice. The injustice is that the, the civilization model, the development model that we've adopted since industrialization has been unfair to the environment. It has treated the global commons as externalities. We've dumped our waste, we've taken resources um, unsustainably, and we've dumped our waste, including carbon, into that environment as a global common that no one really pays for. If we, if we find a cost for these wastes, these carbon emissions, and this use of resources uh, that is currently not that's currently unchecked um, we will be able to turn this process into a more circular process um, where we design out ways where our products will be used for longer where materials will continue to be used and will flow better and our energy sources and our water sources will also go through similar cycles so that's a framing that isn't just uh, ad hoc transition of one sector of, of the industry or one sector or one city in an urban context but it's an economy-wide transformation towards less linear economy and more, more circular economy. Thank you, Karim. The next question is for, for both speakers, and I was wondering when it was going to come. This question is on renewables. And, and, and the question is, what is the present status of renewable energy consumption in the region? And I guess it applies to both uh, you know, Africa and, and the GCC. And what is what are targets and, and progress in, to be made in the, in the future? And with that, I also would like to you know add on a bit more because Egypt has massively increased offshore gas production and also has the biggest untapped solar and wind potential, but it's not tapped, and 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 that that also goes alongside uh, you know uh, countries like uh, Algeria and, and Libya, if I'm not wrong. Um, and in terms of renewables, really. So, so what 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 can we look for in the future in terms of renewables? So perhaps we will start with Aisha first. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Clemens. Um, yes, I think. Well, short answer: If we look at the share of the renewables in the total uh, energy consumption in the region, it is still less than one percent uh, in the region. And uh, since I'm pretty much focused on, on the GCC, I mean, that said, um, in fact, over the last 10 years or so, the deployment of renewable energy in the GCC region has jumped 
from less than 500 megawatt uh, to almost uh, like in 2000, 2010 to almost 3000 megawatt uh, in, in 2019. Um, so there is a, almost a six fold increase in the installed capacity uh, of renewable energy in the GCC. I'm not pretty much aware of other MENA countries, but I think there is a momentum in developing the renewables in the region, but the share is still relatively very uh, small. However, I think um, if we look at the targets and the ambitions, mo most of the countries in the region, uh, specifically for the GCC, they all have targets and ambitions uh, to increase the share of renewable energy in the energy mix. For instance, most recently Saudi Arabia announced uh, to, uh, to deploy 50% or, or to generate 50% of electricity from renewables by 2030 and the other 50 will come from natural gas. Uh, other GCC countries also have uh, targets for Oman, for example, it has uh, a target of achieving 25% of renewable by 2025 um, and then 30% by 2030 and so on and so forth. So there is a, a momentum, but the scale is not large enough yet. Um, and I think uh, the way forward is uh, to focus on uh, increasing the investment uh, domestically, but also to enhance the collaboration between uh, the countries in the region, uh, especially that you know um, the, the the potential for renewable could could be high in one country, um, and it could it can export it to the other country, uh, and this idea has been explored uh, within the GCC, especially with the development of the GCC uh, grid network, and the idea also is not to share uh, electricity that comes from oil and gas, but also to enhance the share of, of the and the trade of the electricity from that comes from the renewables. However, the 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 electricity the the the, elect, the electricity grid uh, network between the GCC is still underused. Um, and it, the way to also uh, deploy the renewables uh, is still like uh, lagging behind. Um, yeah, and I was still there. I think uh, Karim would have more on the other MENA countries. Over to you, Karim. Sure. Yeah, the, the GCC is um, has the because it's a region with huge ambition. Uh, it always has huge ambitions. Uh, the, the, U, the UAE wants to achieve zero, 50 percent by 2050. The Saudi Arabia wants to achieve 50 percent within the next eight years. So they're always really impressive targets out there. The rest of the region, I think it's a different story. If you look at the region as a whole, slowly, incrementally increasing, say 1% every two or three years. The problem is, yes, you hear all these projects, but simultaneously, there's also gas power plants being built at the same time. So yes, the renewables are increasing in megawatt numbers, but there are also other megawatt numbers being added on uh, to the generation capacity in, ter in terms of other fossil fuels. So the percentage doesn't really increase that much. Um, having said that, some of the targets that are coming out of the region are really impressive. I don't, I don't think there's any country in the region that doesn't have a target 
for that is really interesting in terms of um, share of renewables from generation capacity. Most of them are 2030, some of them are 2035, very few of them are 20, 2050. Um, some of them look less believable than others. Uh, the, the target is really interesting, but I doubt we will ever achieve that. Uh, but the ones that are on track, uh, mildly on track, I think Morocco missed its target slightly, but it seems to be on track to achieve uh, 52 percent, I believe, by 2030. And they're getting there. They're, they're doing quite well. Um, Jordan on and off. Egypt looks on track. Highly likely that they will hit the 42 percent by 2035. Uh, Saudi Arabia started from under 1 percent and it wants to hit 50 percent by 20, 2030 within the next eight years. Looks really hard. But then you look at the projects in the pipeline and they are quite impressive. They're quite large projects. So maybe it will happen. But more interestingly, I, I think in terms of renewables, it should not go unmentioned here that the cost of renewables is really cheap. Saudi Arabia had a renewable energy plant built and operating at one cent per kilowatt hour. Normally, normally people in the US say but pay about 12 cents per kilowatt hour for the electricity, just to give you a sense of the current electricity mix. That's, that's coal, natural gas. So one cent per kilowatt hour for solar is really cheap. Even if you add batteries on top of that, batteries are still expensive, it will still be cheap. And on, on wind, Saudi Arabia, again, private sector developers bidded and won a contract to supply the grid to, for, for two cents per kilowatt hour um, of, of wind power. These, again, really cheap. Even if you add batteries on top of that, it will still be cheap. And I think the development here is that we have reached a point where adding renewable energy capacity in this region uh, has become very competitive to the degree that um, Irina recently released a report suggesting that green hydrogen will will be very competitive in the region, even more competitive or equally as competitive as blue hydrogen, because electrolyzers, which are the way in which um, H2O is separated into hydrogen and oxygen, and hydrogen is then taken on, that process, even if you add that on top of renewable energy costs, uh, it will still be very cheap. That's because renewables are cheap in this region. So that could even function as some form of of battery storage in terms of as, as hydrogen. So it's looking like not much has happened so far and that the growth has been slow and incremental, but the future for this region looks really promising. Thank you, Karib. Uh, on that note, this will be our final question. This will be going to both speakers and, and it's an interesting one because it goes back to, uh, you know, the, the question and, and statement about you know financing but also the you know how do we support vulnerable countries and the question here from from valerie is uh, there remains a 20 billion deficit in the pledge by rich nations to support developing countries gathering only 80 billion while 71 percent of this sum is not public finance but in loans and guarantees so how will world leaders be spurred into further support or action for developing countries in the global south. And I think we will reverse the order. Aisha, perhaps you, you want to take the, this one first. Um, yeah, so I'm not pretty much, you know, um, an expert uh, on the mechanisms that are used to enhance global commitment for climate finance. Uh, but I am aware that the countries have made progress last year in Glasgow uh, 
um, in a way to make mobilization of the finance from the developing world to the developing world uh, and to achieve the 100 billion, uh, I think uh, by 2023, if getting you can correct me. Well, that was the, they could not agree on that, but yes, that's that was the aspiration. Yes, and then to you know revisit this target uh, um, every set of years. So yeah, I I don't want to commit because I'm not pretty much expert in this area. Um, um, yeah, well, likewise, uh, Clemens, I, I don't think I have much to say apart from what I mentioned earlier that this was certainly an issue given that developed countries have failed to deliver on the goods that they've actually promised. They said, we will do this. We have committed to achieve in so-and-so by 2020, and they did not. And that complicated matters a little bit. Um, how do we how do we support them in going about doing this? Well, the first thing I think to do would be to deliver on the commitments, the existing commitments uh, that they have um, committed themselves to doing more than 10 years now. Um, uh, and then, and then we could talk a little bit more about the um, support required for these developing nations, uh, low-lying islands, and, and that could that could talk, come on top of that. The second point I want to talk about is also to do with the mechanism. There's much concern. Uh, I think Aisha has kindly alluded to the the issue of difficulty and capacity uh, normally lacking in some of the least developing countries in the region. Uh, you, you've, I think you've mentioned uh, the countries in the Horn of Africa and Yemen. I would also add uh, Palestinian uh, to this as well, who lack basic capacity to write forms um, and to fill the necessary paperwork uh, in order to demonstrate that their project uh, is worthy of funding. But on top of that, we also have the requirement to demonstrate um, exemplary performance of some of those countries. The, the projects have to be groundbreaking in, in demonstrating multiple benefits and uh, demonstrating something that can be replicated elsewhere. So almost asking too much, perhaps, of countries that did not cause this in the first place and are entitled to some support. And if we are all to avoid the worst um, of, of climate change impacts on, on the region and the world. Uh, so, so both delivering on the promises but also working on the mechanisms themselves. They don't have to be so cumbersome. Thank you, Kari. So, so with that, I'd like to thank our two speakers for their meaningful and valuable input for today's topic. And I hope everyone took away something from today's session. And thank you for your questions from the audience and for being with us tonight or in the morning, wherever you may be. And I'd like to thank uh, the team at AGSIW, Bushra and Raymond as well. And of course, my colleague Sharon uh, for putting this together on all the logistics. So I hope we will have further opportunities to explore, to invite our speakers again for, for another talk and also for further collaboration with AGSIW. So thank you everyone and see you next time.